This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. We are, uh, I got my co-host Aaron Terrell here, um, and we're happy to uh, have Kathleen Stock with us um, for our conversation today. Uh, Kathleen is, I'm sure most of our um, listeners and viewers um, know who Kathleen is already, um, but she is author of Material Girls, for those that that aren't already familiar. Um, Welcome, Kathleen, to, uh, to Transparency. Thank you. Hi. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I almost welcomed you to your own show there. <laughs> <laughs> All good. <laughs> could you just um, maybe t- for any viewers that aren't already familiar with you, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, British. I um, up until October of last year, I was a, a philosophy lecturer um, at a British university called the University of Sussex. Um, and I had been gradually over the last few years getting more and more, um, I guess you could say, notorious there because I uh, had spoken out publicly about some concerns I had about uh, this policy of self-ID and um, gender identity treatments for children and things like that. So I had become slightly notorious, as I say, and it all came to a head in October um, where there was some quite big dem- demonstrations, student demonstrations against me. Um, and I decided to leave. So I'm no longer uh, uh, an academic, really. I'm, I'm not employed as an academic anymore. So and now I'm doing some different things. <laughs> we didn't see we a lot news coverage for it here in Canada. I don't know if there was much um, in the United States, Aaron T, but um, I certainly um, was seeing all of that play out through social media and for the, the UK press looking on that in, in, in horror, just how, how badly it, like how badly it was handled and, and how quickly it, it escalated, or at least it, it, it appeared to escalate quickly. I mean, from your perspective, had there been things that had been slowly building or did it, did it seem to come out of nowhere? Um, well, what had been slowly building, I suppose, over a few years was this kind of, um, isolation uh, of me sort of professionally so uh both it was happening both at my university and it was also happening in the philosophy profession which I was in I was quite well embedded in um and it's not it's not a big scene you know people know each other so I was sort of like I was ostracized and yeah there'd been things along the way um protests at my talks um before I'd had stickers on my door saying I was a turf. I'd had um, open letters against me, you know, when I'd published something in a particular magazine or whatever, there'd be an op- there was an open letter saying they shouldn't have done that. Or um, when I got, I got given an o- OBE, which is a kind of honor from the government for services to higher education. And then there was a big open letter by 600 philosophers saying that I was uh, you know, a danger to trans people and upholding the patriarchy with my views and God knows what, it was all nonsense as far as I'm concerned. But um, 
so there'd been stuff like that which wasn't good <laughs> it was fun but it was sort of manageable anyway it felt manageable um but then because of covid quite a lot of teaching had been offline and uh, well sorry online off campus um by zoom and then in september we all went back onto campus so that's when these people had decided i think it turned out because they were interviewed by the press they said that they had over the summer planned to start a campaign when they got back so then it that felt like it escalated very fast because the first over one over a period of a week there were stickers in my building stickers you know in the bathrooms I used and stuff with my name on them saying basically that I was a transphobic turf etc um and then the next day there were posters <laughs> all over the main entrance with my name on them and there was a guy holding a flare dressed like an Antifa guy with a big banner saying stock out and there was a website and then there was a manifesto and then there was leafleting and then there was a big demonstration and then there was another demonstration. So yeah, but that all happened within two or three weeks. And, and that was much, much more intense than anything I'd experienced before. So yeah, that felt fast. And could you kind of just talk about like what your, what your views are on like, what were you, what were you writing that was getting so much backlash <gasps> maybe even before material yeah. girls was published? Um, because what I've read of your views, they're pretty, uh, they're, they're pretty mild and they're very pretty vanilla. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's amazing. Actually. I still marvel at how two sides can see me so differently because from mm -hmm. the sort of, um, I don't know, feminist side, they, they criticize me for not being radical enough. <laughs> And yep. they think of me as this pathetic moderate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, other side, him, if you will. <laughs> the other side is like, she's a witch. You know, it's like this evil yep. witch. But um, yep. my views are, so they all came about in the context of this government consultation about whether the existing law in Britain, which protects the characteristic of gender reassignment, should be changed to protect something called gender identity. So there was already a law protecting um, trans people who under the characteristic of gender reassignment, and that didn't require actually surgery or hormones. It just, you know, it was quite broadly specified anyway, but there, and I was fine with that, but there was a move to move to, there was a move towards gender identity. And that was be, the thing being pushed. And that alongside that came all these um, claims that, uh, self-ID like as in how you feel at the time in that moment whether you feel you're male or female should be the ex explicit official policy um, about what in the policy about whether you go into the women's changing room or the women's sports team or the women's prison or <laughs> whatever it was so that's what I had a problem with initially um, that's usually presented as me wanting to destroy the rights of trans people or destroy the legal protections of trans people but that's not true it was an argument about the form of the legal protection and the consequences if you redefine the category of women and say you know that basically any male can identify into that category um, no matter what the context and there's obviously implications for women so I had views about that um, my views are basically self-ID is a terrible idea I also um, have general views philosophically about gender identity like what it could be what it could mean metaphysically ethically you know so I wanted to explore those in my book um, and I also had views about whether you could it was possible to change sex I mean there are some philosophers who say it is and I didn't think they were right and I wanted to argue with them so I don't think it's possible to change sex um, 
And then I also had certain views about children and like whether it was acceptable on the basis of a profession of this thing, this magical thing, gender identity, to be able to tell whether it'd be a good idea for them to med you know, medically change their bodies. Um, so that's the territory I wanted to explore. But, um, you know, I'm also uh, very happy in interpersonal relationships to, you know, ob observe what I call people don't like it a fiction <laughs> that people have changed sex mm -hmm. um and to observe preferred pronouns um and i fully support the legal protection of trans people it's just i don't agree that the only form that legal protection can take is to bring gender identity into as the thing that is the protected characteristic so that was where the disagreement was but to be honest my critics have no interest in the finer points of what I think about that you know they really don't they don't, don't even know if they understand the differences I just right. mentioned as far as they're concerned I just hate trans people and I want to destroy them <laughs> is the way it's usually put so. you said you have some theories as to why why they um because I've been observing this it's just if, since I think around the um the the the, the rolling you know, uh, turf wars, you know, she got piled on. And then <clears throat> I've also been noticing the attacks that people like, like Jesse Single and Katie Herzog have, you mm -hmm. know, and, and the, as well as yourself, where it's like <clears throat> these really reasonable and, and, and rational just ex explorations of the issue, very, um, very uh, compassionate towards people with gender dysphoria or people who have transitioned mm -hmm. or, um, and, and you guys seem to be the ones that get the absolute brunt of the trans activists um, hate, you know? And it's like, yeah. I, want to be, I want to figure out, you know, why that is, why the actual, um, you know, why actual transphobes aren't, don't get the, the same kind of uh, backlash. Yeah, well, I assume there's two, at least two different things there. One of them is I think that there's a, in any political dispute that I can think of as sort of this virulent, um, there's a tendency to attack the opponent that's ideologically closest to you yeah, <laughs> as it yeah, were yeah. um because in a way they're they're the more threatening one um especially of course it depends where the wider society is but at the moment in britain because um so few people really understand i still think like the ramifications of of this and they don't and it's the language is very confusing and um there's a lot of technical sort of pseudo-medical stuff brought in so they just don't understand what's going on so if somebody comes along and goes, you know, all trans women are men <laughs> um, in a very kind of aggressive way, they just think, well, you're horrible and a crank and I'm just not going to bother with you. You're not. Right. They're not likely to take the, the crowd along at this stage. I hope they never do. But but I I'm obviously have some sort of power you know at the moment because of the moderation and so does jk rowling like you mm -hmm. you you can you can try to make us seem like nazis but we're not mm -hmm. and a neutral observer is not going to think we are mm -hmm. and that makes us quite dangerous i think to people who are extreme on the other side and really want to shut us up because actually moderation is in this context quite um powerful so i think that's that's definitely going on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? I think it's a lot of that. And I also think it's a lot of um, like anything, you know, when you raise a point that makes people start to, to question the ideology or think about it, just to just to like plant a seed of wait, this doesn't quite make sense. Or this mm -hmm. doesn't. And, and like, um, 
there's there's a fear of the house of cards crumbling and i think that that's uh, that you know so so you're absolutely right I, I when like people who are you know really um you know aggressive in their stances um get dismissed because for yeah the reasons that you said that's like they're coming they're going to come across hateful and nobody's going to you know take them them seriously mm-hmm. at all <clears throat> but if somebody's like you know is is gender identity more valid than somebody's biological sex that makes people go well what? i never really thought about it like i never mm-hmm. thought about the details of what we're talking about and then people just start to start to ruminate and think about this issue on their own and mm-hmm. and i feel like you know when you do there's only one conclusion you can come to if you're honest obviously mm-hmm. um but yeah. that's i think that's definitely right as well that maybe that's specific to this debate rather than just a generic feature yeah. of, yeah. of toxic debates because there's such a heavy investment on the sort of in architects of the gender identity story in um, shutting down any discussion of it because it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. I'm sorry. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's born of a desire, you know, yeah. a real wish that something was the case, mm-hmm. but it isn't the case, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so what do you do in that situation? Even a tiny little propping up of a space to go, that doesn't make sense is dangerous because people, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of reality denial involved. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. you're right. And that's probably specific to this particularly, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. relevant here. It feels like maybe I've just been out really out of the loop for a while. And, and I mean, as far as the trans community, I have been, but it seems like a lot of this has just come out of nowhere for me. I mean, 15 years ago when I transitioned it wasn't this complicated. It, it, you know, I had a thing called gender dysphoria. It was mm-hmm. a difficult decision as an adult, you know, what I wanted to, to do about that. And ultimately I ended up medicalizing and mm-hmm. was grateful that there were accommodations, which I saw as a kind of metaphorical societal space, not, not a mm-hmm. literal, I change sex, but mm-hmm. I saw it as a, almost an extension of what the butch femme sub subculture had been doing within the lesbian community to extend that metaphorical space yeah. Great room in society for gender nonconforming people. Um, yeah. I think that's how in the academy, quite a lot of people still think of it, although they are increasingly ignoring the evidence that it's all become very literalized. I think that sort of the, the people working in that I know that were working in queer theory or come from like uh, lesbian world, or the gay world, just think it's kind of all an extension of um gender dynamics, butch femme dynamics, for instance. Um, and as you say, it's sort of metaphorical, but that is the problem. It's no longer, it's gone into policies, it's gone into yeah. law, it's gone into government. It's now as state sponsored and literal in some places as you could get, and there's no room for play anymore. Yeah. As you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I know when when um as far as like putting like changing sex on our identification, the, the rationale that we always had for that initially was just safety issues that we didn't want to necessarily be outed everywhere we went if we mm-hmm. were traveling to another country, for example, that that maybe wasn't um mm-hmm. wasn't very friendly towards gender nonconformity or trans people. So so we didn't want to be outed everywhere, but there's got to be another solution to that that doesn't that still records our biological sex in reality-based ways somewhere. I mean, yeah. that's important, even on the medical records and things, we need to retain that, that yeah. information. I mean, it's all, I don't have solutions. I don't have, and I certainly don't have easy ones, but it seems to me that as long as 
um, it was a relatively small number of people medically transitioning, the problems we now see or the worries that people have just didn't arise because the worries about, I mean, I don't know what the worry is, but the worry is obviously not about people. I think the worry is not about people medically, adults have medically transitioned. The worry is about people who have no intention of medically transitioning and who somehow get to change their birth certificate or enter the opposite sex spaces. And it's a completely different ballgame as soon as that is brought yeah. into the table. And that is, as you know, brought, back, brought about by changing the narrative from gender dysphoria um, to this sort of essentialized core thing that we're all supposed to have that, you know, bursts out of our chest somehow, <laughs> you know, and then becomes the defining moral characteristic of us, no matter what, no matter what we do look like or what the accompanying context is. And that's the nuts bit. So, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing I, how many I, people don't realize it's a religion. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Yeah, it's so obviously a religion. I mean, you can see, I mean, a lot of social justice movements are taking the place of organized religion I think but you can see it so obviously in the in the um in the holy calendar of uh of awareness days <laughs> you know <laughs> it's exactly like the catholic saints and feast days and holy days of obligation and you know the flags that have to go up and the the robes that have to be worn and the the lanyards and all the rest yeah. of it it's just even when our, our business meetings like here in Canada, we do um, land acknowledgements um, that we've stolen the land from First Nations people. And then so and then tacked onto that is sort of the pronoun pronoun. Yeah. Recitation. So it, yes. it, so we start with business meetings and it does feel like um, the beginning of a religious ceremony, like mm. all rise for the Christ candle. And it, <laughs> yeah. it, feels, it feels like that, doesn't it? Because it's yeah. very ritualized. It's very ritualized and you don't really have a um a chance to say hang on a minute i'm an atheist you know i don't know it feels more than religious because or at least a certain kind of religion because you didn't choose necessarily to go into that church but nonetheless there you are expected to perform the yeah. right yeah, it's, I, it's it's externally imposed on you like religions in like yeah uh it, you know in religious countries right right like in mm -hmm. in the west we've basically had religious freedom all of our lives obviously consciously um mm -hmm. but now it's now we're all in this position where we have to go along with this uh with this uh yeah new religion and i think a lot of people don't realize what what's happening no no exactly Exactly. When we talk about some of the problems that are arising because of these strange laws that are being written, there's a disbelief that any of that's happening. But people don't realize that our media also isn't allowed to report on a lot of that, at least not here in Canada. And I think that was the case in the yeah. UK as well until fairly recently. Things are starting to open up a little bit there in the media, but yeah. we're not allowed to report on um, what's happening in the female prisons or... I know. I mean, yeah. And so in the UK, there's been a bit of a change because it certainly was true, I would say, three or four years ago, that most newspapers just wouldn't touch these stories, um, whether on right or left, maybe like, I don't know, there's probably some exceptions, but generally speaking, whenever my views were talked about, it would always be prefaced with anti-trans or transphobic, <laughs> um, which is not fair and not true but and it's but that's it just sort of almost like a kind of um um sort of automatic kind of deference to 
what they assumed is the feelings of trans people. Um, as it turns out, that's not true either. But then um, I think luckily, and I don't really know why, uh, the press, the centrist press over here has taken it, like the Times, the t and most a lot of people would call those right wing. They are, but they're centre right. They're not um, far right. National front. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> and then even the Guardian occasionally dips, dips its toe in now, which is left, and the Observer it's, it's good on it. So the space has opened up. But I do see, because I follow lots of people on Twitter, I can see Canada in particular has a terrible problem um, in getting the stories out or being talked about fairly. And I guess the states, did, you know, the, the progressive left um, places like the New York Times are incredibly timid Although it seems like they had a story recently yeah, that was a bit The better. last couple of months, yeah. <clears throat> it seems like yeah. it's like we might be slowly shifting a corner here. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously frightened. I guess the fear is, because they just assume that the world is horribly transphobic and they too collide, sort of um, bring together criticism of gender identity with criticism of trans people. So they assume that these stories are just automatically terribly harmful to trans people. But people like you are make, making it clear that that is just not the case, that there's still room for discussion and uh, about what's to, the best thing to do here. Mm -hmm. We just, um, self-ID just landed here in, uh, in my province um, just the last month. And, um, and we, had, we were able to get into the mainstream media to, to talk about that a little bit and some of, the, right. some of the, my concerns about self-ID because uh, one province over in in Alberta there was a, a news report it wasn't mainstream media but it was there was a news report that um, a young man not trans in in any way but a, a young as far as I know heterosexual man decided to change his gender marker on his ID um, in order to get lower car insurance rates <laughs> well yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, why not? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You've incentivized. Well, I always get amazed at the kind of blind faith in human nature that some of the people that bring in these policies have. Like, what do you think is going to happen if you open up an opportunity for self-interest here like that? Then, of course, in all sorts of areas, self-interest will prevail because that's and that's why we try to put faith safeguards in normally, not yeah. like invite them in. It's so frustrating because these things, you know, the backlash is going to come on to trans people. And, and that's why I really want to encourage more and more trans people to, to speak out about these things, because these insane policies that are so open to being abused in one way or another is going to hurt us in the long run. Um, and I, I totally agree. Yeah. So I couldn't we, agree more. I mean, also I, I get, I do get emails or I did when I had to, university email address but I get emails from transsexuals in the UK and they say you know we didn't ask for this we don't want this the people that speak for us are not trans even as far as they're concerned some of them um there's no sort of representative democratic aspect to this at all because it's just as you know the result of a few people basically getting political influence and saying we speak for this entire group um but it so yeah I also worry about the backlash for lesbian and gay people too, because the net result of squashing the LGB with the T is um, that the wider public, the straight public, don't really 
differentiate anymore between the interests of the LGB mm-hmm. and the T. So that way have a backlash sort of effect later on as well. But yeah, it's a mess. It's a total mess. So yeah, um, kudos to you. Total mess so, on so many so many levels. I mean, our healthcare system's a mess and right and the more the more yeah the more i dig into just the whole topic of of trans in society and how this is playing out over the last 20 years it's it's become such such a mess in so many ways Mm -hmm. yeah i mean in healthcare it seems like it's not my area of specialty although i have read quite a few papers but quite even just looking at critiques of um academic supposedly peer-reviewed uh, work on mental health in the trans population there's just so many glaring errors with them and or at least often there is and I think it's because the whole area is just so politicized it's just absolutely politicized we've lost the space between the facts and the values and now people seem to only want to go into that work if they can come out with a certain kind of narrative in advance they know the narrative they want to come out with and then they'll get the data to produce that narrative but that's a total disservice to trans people um, when you, you said that that in your at the, at the University of Sussex, Sussex as well as in your um, in your specific philosophy department, you were basically uh, you know professionally ostracized um, from your from your college. Yeah, not so, not so much in my department. I have to say, I have okay. to keep saying that it was a small department, and they were all right. It was the wider sort of yeah humanities, okay. let's say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then I guess I was wondering, like, to me, the the, the gender question is it's just like a, a perfect philosophical uh, conundrum to explore, mm-hmm. but nobody seems uh, brave enough to do that. Do you think that's an element of of, of cowardice, of, oh, of yeah. um, uh, <laughs> social preservation? Um, well, you, there's plenty of people that will explore it, explore in exactly the way that I just described. So I'm being ironic. It's not exploration at all, <laughs> in the sense that they have a conclusion they want to reach and they want to get there and they will produce the arguments or the evidence so from the side of the cheerleaders for self-id or for the cheerleaders of gender identity as a kind of metaphysically and morally important concept there are loads of them in fact mm-hmm. what i had not realized when i started talking about this is that there's just been tens of journals in the English speaking world, just churning out propaganda for years in favor of males being lesbians and gender identity being the most important thing and radical feminists being witches. And, you know, this whole uh, story has been embedded in, into academia. And then as new people come into the, into the various professions, gender studies, philosophy, um, English, wherever, they learn the story they know that they can't question it. They know they can get ahead by perpetuating it because it's all, you know, it's all tied into like career structures and you have to get publications. So you learn the script, you learn how to extend the script a little bit each time. Like you discover that this new thing that nobody thought was transphobic is really transphobic. That's a journal article, <laughs> you know, you learn how to do uh-huh. it. And then, and then someone like me comes along and looks at it and goes like, fuck, <laughs> you know, how, <laughs> how am I going to get over all this? No wonder they all hate me. You know, I mean, it's just so there's an industry um, in producing this stuff. Now, from my side, there are a few brave souls who are trying. Um, I don't even know want to name their names in case they I mean. So there's what there's Alex Burner, MIT, he's a professor of linguistics. There's um, 
Mary Lang in York and Sophie Allen in Kiel and um, uh, Jane Claire Jones uh, in, in England. So yeah, there's a few that I know of in my, that's just in my area and, and there's plenty, there's others in other disciplines too, um, trying to complicate the issue, but it's, it's an uphill struggle because you just, if you want to do it through the academic route, you meet referees who are totally hostile like the minute you say anything like we've been saying, it's like, oh no, transphobic, you know? So um, it's really difficult. And I, I have to say most of these people are not trans either. <laughs> they're, mm -hmm. And they're not, I don't think they're gay half of them or anything. They're just, they're just careerists who have learned the script. Mm -hmm. Like I've been trying for the last year to engage our, our politicians and mainstream media. And you would think that I would have some kind of magical trans power to be able to, um, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. to talk to people, but yeah, they won't talk to me. Like they've kind of got their people, right. That are lot, you know, right. very skilled lobbyists and have yeah. completely controlled the narrative. And I think the average trans person is just, isn't involved in that level of politics. They're just getting on with their lives, yeah. you know, and, and I don't think realize what the lobbyists are, are doing and, and what the long-term implications of that are going to be. Um, mm. And it's so frustrating that to try to engage in a more nuanced conversation about it as a trans person, I'm not allowed and I'm getting backlash and I'm being called a transphobe. Yeah, I was going to say, does that not, I mean, you're, you just require a certain kind of resilience and bravery, I think, to do what you're doing. And I can see why a lot of trans people, not that I'm saying they aren't brave, but you know, it's, it's stressful. And your identity is constantly being discussed. That's like, that must be incredibly <laughs> difficult, I think. Um, so I don't know, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's- It is difficult. Like, I mean, everyone, including trans people, and I think this is why the culture within the trans communities, you know, kind of developed the way it did is that the medical industry, um, the clinical industry, doesn't want to define gender dysphoria for us anymore. They don't want to educate about what it is from an evidence base. Um, so they've very much adopted this, you know, the, the, the more the identity politics. And I think because of that, we're, we're not grounded in uh, any kind of, you know, anchored by, by any reality basis anymore. Like to understand this as this is gender dysphoria, here's what it, the evidence says about it. Um, this is what it is, and, and then here's how we're going to help accommodate you. Um, every trans person out there kind of has their own sort of pet theory about what gender, what what their gender dysphoria is, or what trans mm -hmm. is, and and that exists in the general population as well. Everyone sort of has a hunch or their pet theory about why people transition, and so whether it's some people say it's it's all trauma, it's all OCD, it's all body dysmorphia, it's all this or that. Mm -hmm. So that is difficult to enter into the conversation when you know that everyone that you're having that conversation with has their own idea about what your yeah. dysphoria is. And it's so it's really hard to problem solve when you don't have any common definition mm -hmm. of the condition. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it seems to me that any explanation offered of anything that starts with it's all dot 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 <laughs> is wrong <laughs> you know suspect anyway so yeah there's a but I can see completely when I watch the dynamics online of this um so-called discussion that there's just this huge tendency to want to like make it all this or all that or all the other um which can't be right 
because <laughs> humans aren't that simple. Yeah. And I think there's a certain amount of projection that happens too, where people project mm-hmm. everything that they maybe don't like about their own sex onto trans mm-hmm. people. It's like, well, you've transitioned because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, no, maybe that's what, that's maybe that's what you don't like about your sex. That's not what. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. There's projection everywhere. Um, it's a human characteristic. So it's good. Yeah. Happen. And I've seen that against, um, I don't remember the context but there was some person somehow that I was an interlocutor with from the other side and they were saying anyway I think I remember who it was but anyway it doesn't matter they were just basically saying um the reason people like me had a problem had a problem with trans people obviously I supposed to have a problem with trans people I don't but um was that I was uncomfortable people like me were uncomfortable with our Selves and we were jealous or envious <laughs> of trans men <laughs> so it's like so it works both ways these stupid explanations of yeah you know i mean sometimes they'll be right i'm sure once in a while they'll be right but they're not they don't work as massive mass explanations like even on the the trans forums and stuff i'm not on very many because i've long been kicked off most of them but um the one <laughs> when i was on them it, like to try to scratch the surface because you would think that within a trans only forum there would be a certain amount of safety to be able to let the political guard down and just talk to each other that was my hope anyways Mm. so I would ask some questions like well what what do you think gender dysphoria is and it seems like um you know 15 years ago there was a little more willingness to talk about that in reality-based terms but that's been completely taken over by just this the political narrative and no one wants to look deeper than that um because it does cause so much infighting as, yeah. as soon as you start saying well i think it's about this well the because the, the problem is everyone transitioned for different reasons and mm-hmm. so we're not going to within the community come settle on any one definition so it causes so much pain and infighting as soon as you as soon as you take that lid off the box and try to have a reality-based conversation that's, yeah. that's part of why that maybe that people get behind that narrative um yeah. to just avoid to have a single story to advance trans rights but it's but it's but you, not a true narrative and it's so unsatisfying yeah. to never be able to talk authentically about what our experience meant to us yeah I mean I I would guess that the the way to proceed would be to define gender dysphoria kind of behaviorally as far as possible like it's a I mean partly in terms of feelings so not entirely behaviorally but you know, without trying to like attach an origin story or a cause to it, it's just this set presentation of this, these symptoms. And then the origin story will differ. I mean, there may still be trends within origin stories. I'm sure there are, but then, but the, I mean, it's a bit like in um, lesbian and gay discussions about the gay gene or this, or, you know, whether you can choose to be gay and all that interminable, toxic <laughs> arguing that goes on there yeah. but it's not a coincidence that there's toxic arguing in these areas it's because people feel defensive about yeah. their decisions or their behavior and they feel like they have to find an explanation well some of them I'm not saying everybody <laughs> but some people find, feel they have to find an explanation that explains how they are the way they are that kind of absolves them or that can be normalized and and that's important but um I think this I think the facts are the facts like they may be politically inconvenient, you know, it may be yeah. that there is no gay gene or, you know, but whether there is or there isn't, it's not affected by whether it would really help me if there was one, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think with this one, um, 
is is it's so much more complicated because of all the, obviously the, um, the the medical. Uh, procedures that are involved, right? So, so I think there there is there's a lot of the same kind of insecurity that's happening internally on people with people in like in in the in like say in like um, lesbian and gay uh, discussions of what you know the root of homosexuality or <clears throat> so I can see why that would cause a lot of insecurity and and um, uh, yeah defensiveness. But then on the trans side of things, it's the same kind of thing, that same kind of um, infighting. Except when you dig into it, it seems like the 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 reasons and the feelings are so diverse. Um, at least for me, when I when I started delving into it more deeply in around 2017, because mm-hmm. um, I always had an experience of more like body dysmorphia was more like my dysphoria, and then I got into, and I assumed that's what everybody had, and then I got into these discussions, and I realized these are all very different experiences, and suddenly I had this this intense insecurity that this isn't real. Like if 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 we're all having this, you know these these very different experiences of this and different mm-hmm. reasons and motivations trans as i understood it is not a real thing and mm-hmm. and that and i think people in these communities and then so but then if you extend that to now we're medically interfering with people to mm-hmm. to validate this thing whereas in you know with homosexuality there's no medication involved there's yeah. no there's no irreversible irreversible interventions that people yeah. need to to no, weigh out but so when the, and then when you extend this even further that we're doing it to children, everybody gets really, really insecure and uh, really, really defensive. And that's why the tension. But why? Are... I mean, I completely agree with that. I mean, and I assume that part of the problem. Well, this is maybe a, a this is an opinionated take and you're free to disagree with me. But I assume that the problem is that trans is covering all these um, these different demographics. And, and it also um handily masks the sex distinction because there's differences between trans men and trans women that you Mm -hmm. won't get discussed properly if all you're interested in is this thing that we all are supposed to share that caused us all to be feel like the point (laughs) (laughs) well i know (laughs) but even amongst the sex one sex there will be differences between um lesbians and straight uh girls oh sorry yeah whatever um so so yeah, there may well be many different routes to Rome, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Going back to what you were saying about um, you know, the possible origins of of um homosexuality, you know, that's it's gonna be a really tricky <laughs> forward because to to really understand what the homosexual type of gender dysphoria is, um I found I met with quite a bit of resistance from the gay and lesbian community because I think, what am I trying to say? I think there's an aspect of of homosexuality, a dimension of it that's not yet well understood, and, and that it's that that in terms of that gender nonconformity aspect or the the opposite sex mirroring that happens with some of us. I don't think that's you know when we achieved gay and lesbian rights, we kind of did it on. The premise of straight looking and straight acting in a lot of ways like we in and i think it pushed those of us who are more gender non-conforming more and more to the margins of the gay and lesbian community because we weren't the look that the that the gay and lesbian community as as a whole yeah. um, wanted in order to advance our yeah. right to the mainstream and that's interesting so i would i would really because i understand my gender dysphoria as an extension or at um, yeah, as an extension of having been a butch lesbian, that it's mm-hmm. gender um, dysphoria, it, 
the homosexual subtype is something that a lot of gay and lesbian people do experience to some degree at some point in their lives, especially as children and, and most outgrow it. So it, there's, it is something, um, mm-hmm. a dimension inherit it somehow in, a, say, in our sexual orientation. Yeah. And I would really like to see the, the gay and lesbian community reclaim that as a gay and lesbian experience. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's lots of things that's really interesting. I mean, just want to observe that in my understanding of the sort of UK scene, which is obviously the one I know more. Um, and I've been looking at quite a lot of lesbian history recently, that when sort of in the 60s and 70s, when there were various liberation movements coming to prominence, there was obviously uh, second wave feminism and um, there were lesbians involved in that. And lesbians are really, it was the thing I was reading was saying, you know, they had basically a choice. They could go with a gay, gay liberation front <laughs> or they could go with the, the feminists or they could strike out on their own. But the feminist angle really obviously disapproved strongly and still does of butch femme dynamics because they see it as retrogressive and patriarchal. And I, I don't agree with that, actually. I don't know if I've ever said that. And that's yet another way in which I'll annoy radical feminists. But um, so that's but it, I do think you're right that it kind of um, first of all it made it difficult for people who were naturally well not naturally more attracted to butch behavior and butch expression and secondly I think it then you know came back in other ways to cause lots of toxicity I mean it just shouldn't have been a war it just shouldn't have been we have enough wars without invite these in wars about gender expression so um, that was just one thing I wanted to say but I was going to say something else as well. I can't remember what it was. Um, yeah, oh, well, I, I was going to say that I think actually, although I criticised Judith Butler almost with every breath that I <laughs> take, um, I do think that she and others in that uh, field do understand the connection for some between gender and sexual orientation and gender nonconformity and sexual orientation and the kind of merging of the two in a way you just can't really easily separate them out. Um, Yeah, to be a lesbian is to be, um, for a start, gender nonconforming. To be a gay man is to be gender nonconforming. And then quite often people understand their own sexuality through a prism of their body and the bodies that they're, obviously the bodies they're attracted to, but also the affinities they feel with one sex or other and so on. So it's just to say, I, I think I agree with you. <laughs> but it's going to be hard, I think, to really articulate that and, and to um, maybe recapture that. I mean, if, if there are a number of gay and lesbian people who don't really want to talk about origins, like, you know, what is homosexuality mm-hmm. and is it, is it biological? Um, then it's going to be really hard for us to articulate what is ge- the, the homosexual subtype of gender dysphoria as well. Do you think, why do you think we need to do that in order to do the other? Um, I guess it comes down to what is innate and what is entire, what is um, cultural or environmental influence, you know, like is, is a butch lesbian, for example, is that gender nonconformity something innate or is it entirely a cultural construction? So it comes back, I think, to down to that, like that culture oh, right. war. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you need, I'm not saying you can't have one, but I don't think you need an innate story 
to to fit with a lot of the things you said there like um you know because you first innate i mean you've got an innate body you've got an innate body type like most of us can't really fundamentally alter our body types and if your body type is uh coded masculine in a particular and it won't even just be coded because nobody else can change their body shape either and there's some female children that look more like boy children and across every culture (laughs) physically so that's innate um i don't you know you could then have a story that said that sexuality came on developmentally quite early on and sort of trying to map out the world and where you fitted in it that wouldn't necessarily imply that you had a gene but it also wouldn't mean that you're making a choice or anything as crude as that i mean you wouldn't certainly wouldn't tie you up to political lesbianism or whatever so anyway i just think there's a number of ways in which could go there without going down the innate route but i think equally i think if it is innate it's innate you know i mean we can't there's a fact again there's a fact we need to find out what the fact is perhaps i actually don't care much about the fact but um but nothing you know our feelings don't come into it it's a fact or isn't i think eventually we'll um hopefully uh we will find out so like like you were saying kathleen that 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 a gender dysphoria or the experience of trans is very different between the males and the females who experience it. Um, and I think, I think we're gonna um, find the same when we look at, look at homosexuality. I think there, is, there, is, it, there isn't one thing that is homosexuality. I think, right. it, I think it's different between males and females. And I think, right. well, first of all, we do know that homosexuality is much more common in males than it is in females. And bisexuality is much more common in females than it is in males. Um, mm. Uh, and I think, and I think, in a lot of cases, it's both. I think, I think it's not. Oh, is it innate or is it culturally learned? I think for some, it's one, and some it's the other. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think there's yeah, that be a could, lot of both. That's certainly possible. Certainly possible. I mean, even if you thought there was an innate gay gene, it wouldn't follow that everyone's gay had it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yep. yeah, same. Yeah, as I true. think that's right. Same is true with with trans or gender dysphoria. I mean, I think there are probably for some people some biological factors in mm-hmm. some but but others are completely um socially constructed identities yeah i mean yeah <laughs> it definitely it's so obviously true if you if you um i'm afraid i don't really want to mention the word but you know if you bring in uh aj agp like then that's a different motive altogether for the the transition to um, the things that we've been talking, the context we've been talking about. But I absolutely agree with you, um, Aaron uh, T, um, as well, that there's no one experience of homosexuality and there's definitely, because women, I think what we've totally lost sight of all the way through is that women and men are different. <laughs> they don't have to yep. be completely different, but they are physically different and that has that has ramifications for how they experience the world on average in general. And so women with women is going to be different to men with men for all sorts of reasons to do with testosterone or lack of it for one. So um, yeah, there's a whole set of conversations to have there that in a way we aren't encouraged to have because our models are very, our our models of equality and um, progress sort of encourage us to kind of play down these differences. Yeah, now we're we're having to look at things on a on a cis trans, uh, like a, a cis trans mm. dichotomy rather than a male female dichotomy, yeah. and so 
uh, yeah. yeah, it just neutralizes all the, all the male female differences. Yeah, and it doesn't give you anything in, that's very useful in its place no. <laughs> because, as we've no. just established, there's no natural distinction between the cis no. and the trans in that way. Yeah. yeah. What um, I mean, in the it, the way it's that it's playing out in the UK because you've had you know the self ID laws longer than we have here in in Canada, and that's part of my interest in watching what's happening in the UK is is you know, because you are a number of years ahead of us, um, you know, follow that trajectory and, and reflect on, could we do things differently here in Canada? But so because you've had um, the self ID laws in place in the UK well, longer we, than we have. We haven't though. We haven't, oh, you we haven't? haven't? So, no, see, this is the confusing thing. Um, they're not in law. We okay. don't have a self ID. We, the, the closest we've got is that gender identity is mentioned in hate hate speech uh, okay. definitions okay but what we have is an uh, activist organization stonewall that is so well embedded in most of our institutions corporations government departments schools colleges that they have told and they are basically they're there to advise on equality issues that they have told institutions to instigate self-id okay so most institutions have gone what they would call ahead of the law <laughs> in okay. a progressive way towards self-id um but it's not in law Okay. So that's the part of the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but I think the question probably still stands because we have had effectively self ID okay. in a number of areas, including prisons, um, sports teams, changing rooms and so on uh, for a while. Okay. So I guess with the introduction of that concept then, um, it, mm -hmm. it, so what, what things are you seeing, um, in, you know, in real life as, as that plays out, um, have you seen a shift in um, just real life examples of, of how that's manifested? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, it's quite hard to come up with some examples in some sectors because there's just, there seems to be no desire to track effects. Um, and actually sometimes it, in, when data is involved, attempts to track the data is being hamstrung by the, by the fact that the data explicitly picks up gender identity, not sex. <laughs> so uh, that is a problem because you need to be able to know <laughs> the sex and the gender identity to be able to identify some of these issues. But one place where it's really obviously having an effect is in um, crime and the judicial system. So uh, there's a number of, I'm afraid I've forgotten the number, I should have gender up, but there is a number of um, males in women's prisons some of whom do not have a gender recognition certificate. So in Britain, you can legally apply for a gender recognition certificate and, you, and that involves um, some kind of medical oversight and a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Uh, but some, some of these people do not have that and yet they are in women's prison. So it's on the basis of identity and nothing else. And they don't have necessarily have surgery or hormones either. So there's, um, and there seems to be, in some cases, a pattern of opportunistic, as you'd expect, you know, it's back to the insurance, you know, you get into a lower security prison, uh, you might get the opportunity um, to sexually offend. And some of these are sexually, sexual offenders. So we've had a well-known case in 2018 of a sex offender in a women's prison who assaulted women there, Karen White. And there have been some other cases uh, more recently. The other, um, I think there's been at least seven sexual assaults in women's prisons by trans-identified males. But um, 
the other area where it's really obvious is in terms of um, recording of crime and particularly sexual crime. So the numbers of, so in, in Britain, you as a woman, you can't uh, technically be charged with rape because the, the statutory definition of rape requires you to have a penis. However, you can be um, charged with assisting in rape, but the numbers have always been pretty small. Um, but <laughs> in recent years, large numbers of women are suddenly appearing uh, in the rape statistics. Or in, so, you know, have women become more violent? No, they have not. But males are now allowed to say to the police as they are um, charged, I'm a woman, and that's written down. And that goes into the system. So that's those are two places where you can see that that makes a big difference. And, and the thing is, in any area where um, uh, there was a big difference between women and men in terms of their behavior, it will take so that, for instance, only a few women statistically did this and lots of men did it. It would take only a few men identifying into the category to change, apparently change the pattern. And we wouldn't know if we haven't tracked sex as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I imagine this is happening in Canada too. I mean, there are definitely uh, males in women's prisons in Canada yes. and in California. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's shocking because, uh, I mean, it makes me very cross. It's like, well, I probably get crossest. These are women who are incredibly vulnerable in those prisons, you know, and usually non-violent offenders and high proportion of being the care system, high proportion of being homeless before they went in there, histories of sexual and emotional trauma. And we're putting male sex offenders in there on the basis of their say-so. You know, it's just yeah. the chattering, in, it, financially insulated people who are doing it to them. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like common sense, doesn't it? Like, how is that okay? And, and how is that safe? And it's, nobody cares about those women. That is why I think it's just horrible. It is horrible. Yeah, we had a, a quite a, I mean, and again, the mainstream media wouldn't cover it, but we had a case here in, in BC of um, a sex offender, very, very horrible um, sexual offenses was transferred into a women's prison. Like it just doesn't make sense when it's, especially when their crimes are sex-based crimes. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it doesn't really make sense anyway, no. I think, but it particularly makes no sense. And it's particularly perverse and I would say evil, to be honest, to torment these women further by putting these people in. I mean, I just don't understand what's going on. I mean, it's a certain kind of magical thinking. That's what it is, right? A kind of religious, quasi-religious magical thinking that something amazing has happened to this person. That their soul has been transformed it's just nonsense. And then those, those women who object in the institutions, they're gaslit into being mm. basically, you know, transphobe in prison, you know, objects, yeah. you know, bigot, you know. Difficult if, women. If, yeah, yeah, if they object. Yeah, exactly. There was some sort of uh, report in the British system. Um, I wish I could remember the context, but it was someone official sounding, talking about those women and saying, well, in every prison, there's uh, there's a sort of, a, a set of women who are kind of difficult and um, likely to kick off, basically, but basically, you know, kind of reducing them to something 
pathologically behavioral as opposed to perfectly rationally going I'm frightened of this person help you know protect me from them I think the wishful thinking is is definitely a part of it but I think I think part of it too because the culture war the ideological war has become so ugly um that there's a lot of hate on both sides and when Mm -hmm. when at the extreme polar ends of both sides and when that happens like there's so many trans activists who are so angry at the turfs that mm-hmm. I do think that in some of these laws that there is a malice in them, like and an, an intention of because it, it's become this heated war to the degree that people are wanting to stick it to each other rather than mm-hmm. do what's fair and right and nuanced. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that in some areas. I'm not sure I think that that yet has penetrated the actual policies and laws because as far as I can see, the laws and policies are still being made by these kind of really quite naive people. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's true of the politicians, but I think some of the trans activists are being, who the trans activists who are most, kind of prominent and have the ears of the politicians, I think are kind of, I don't think their intentions are always honorable. And I, I think they misrepresent some right. of the politics to these naive and well-meaning politicians. I think that's probably true. I mean, in fact, I can think of several examples as you're saying it. So yeah, I think that's true. I think it's a mixture of people, isn't it? Like there's well-meaning gays and lesbians, there's, you know, um, there's, well-meaning trans people there's well-meaning straight people and then there are people who have sort of slightly more complicated uh, motives and yeah you're right that the the two sides are getting um further and further apart i do think though that a lot of the worst stuff happens online and um on both sides and we see it um more than the public do as it were so I think you can sort of a dynamic can start where you each push each other further into your positions and but there are still people who are not really seeing any of it so that's true uh, and they're the people that I think we should be talking to um so it's not always a good idea I think to focus on the extremists on the other side is what I'm trying to say Mm -hmm. um it's almost counterproductive because you just kind of like draw attention to them and then and then gives them more energy and more fuel. And then they, you know, the whole game dance, dance of anger continues as it were. I think a lot of this is also motivated by, I mean, a lot of these people are young, right? Um, I, I think a lot of it is also motivated, like what happened to you, you know, the actual foot soldiers who were there on campus. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think so much of that is, is people who want a holy war. They really don't even know what the issue is. They don't yeah, even yeah, know yeah. what they're objecting to. They just, I think we see it with Antifa. Um, you see it with, with fucking ISIS, you know, people with a lot of testosterone and no moral crusade no cause latching on mm-hmm. something that's like this is going to give me purpose i i've got a reason to be angry and fight now you know it's like yeah and so it, it gives like basically a, a an outlet for that kind of normal you know late teens early 20s impulse to just like yeah. change and, and you know do so aggressively um, yeah i think that's what totally. most of the antifa and a lot of the, the the foot soldiers of of trans rights activists as you pointed out they're not even trans themselves i think because they a lot of them are just like they want yeah they want to fight to feel to feel part of totally i mean they're not all 
testosterone fueled either. I mean, I would say if I had to guess, I mean, bearing in mind that I'm not privy to the the back room of the discussions that, you know, culminated in the campaign against me, I would say that the organizers were probably male <laughs> and the foot soldiers were almost all female. And and they weren't, they are more of the, I mean, again, I absolutely agree with you that most of them had no idea what I think, no idea except a vague knowledge that I'm bad and, you know, must be stopped. But um, they're more of the kind of like, we just want to be safe. Right. We're, non-bi- we're non-binary or whatever. Um, yeah. We just want to be safe and looked after and the, the institution's not looking after us. So it's more of a juvenile position. I mean, well, maybe they're both equally juvenile, oh. but, right. <laughs> but right. they're wrong. And they're definitely of their time. So I'm assuming that quite a lot of them in 10 years time will look back and think, oh, how the hell did I end up there? Mm-hmm. You know, and they won't necessarily even know because it's a cultural force that's moving oh. through quite a lot of us in the moment. Yep. Yeah, but this this is one you know where where the 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 adults in in positions of power and in institutions have mm-hmm. have been equally captured by it because yeah, yeah youth movements have always done this you know but it's, yeah the, yeah exactly this is unique in that it's taken over you know healthcare and um, yeah yeah that's the real that's where the criticism has to go first is like what mm-hmm. do the forty year olds and the fifty year olds and what do they think they're doing I mean in in universities there's always been a tendency for um, some lecturers to, uh, like my dad would call it, um, eat your ice cream with the kids, as it were. Like, basically, a lot of academics never grew up themselves. They're mm-hmm. essentially juvenile and essentially contrarian and oppositional. And so, and they like getting the kids in their corner and whipping them up a bit. Um, but, you know, I don't understand how this has gone out to. The government or the NHS or you know that is really quite mad. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've seen happen here in Canada which I'm sure happens everywhere is that these um, the lobbyists at the top who are thinking in terms of strategy they don't tend to do the grunt work and, and they use social media to really manipulate the masses and it, it's often like you know, as you're saying Aaron the, the angry masses like so there was a trans activist that was um, after me a year ago and would go on social media and misrepresent things that I had said and done in order to whip up people up into a frenzy so that those people would go after me. And it's Mm -hmm. such a, such a dishonest way of doing activism um, to misrepresent people and then send other people out to do the dirty work Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't blow back onto, onto the activists. It's, yeah that really sucks yeah I mean this yeah <laughs> I don't know what to say that's really shit so it's just a way that, that social media is being used right to to manipulate people and uh and distort stories and get people whipped up into into front. yeah and the algorithms don't help like anger travels much faster than moderation you know I've noticed myself that when I occasionally rant on twitter it picks up energy like nothing on earth, you know, just goes and then something else that's much more moderate won't. Um, I, yeah, there's one, one thing I do think is that um, a lot of the dynamics that I'd say my side or our side or whatever attribute to to the trans activists are also (laughs) flowing through us. Um, (laughs) And we should be more, 
aware of that, that we are not like immune to the effects of the algorithms or to the effects of manipulation or to the effects of cherry picking facts or um, projection or believing what we want to believe and all that. Mm-hmm. That's going on with us too. So I think we've got to stay um, aware of that or we'll just end up being as bad as them. <laughs> so what efforts are happening in, in the UK to, to bring people into the middle um, to sort some of these things out? Um, well, of course, the, the kind of um, characterization of what the middle is, is disputed. So as I s- said, I think before that, like, whereas I think I am the middle, <laughs> I don't see, you know, I'm pretty close to a, the best it can be, I think, because I, I just, <laughs> I know that sounded arrogant, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I don't no. mean it like that. I just mean, like, there's no way that we can have policies that are based on self-ID. They just don't work. So reject that. And then where, what can we do? And then you talk about third spaces and you can talk about um, the appropriateness of observing fictions in certain, you know, contexts and preferred pronouns and all that stuff. And, and strong legal protections for trans people. So I think that's around the middle ground, I think, um, in the UK. But, um, and in that area, there are a number of organizations kind of in that space now, grassroots organizations. Um, there's also more extreme ones. There's also ones that think repeal the Gender Recognition Act or never use preferred pronouns or um, just usual the changing room that's for your biological sex very narrowly defined and all that there's those people too but so if you call that the middle ground then there's um there's grassroots organizations like sex matters is one um as far as i know that's their position still um women's uh, a woman's place is a left-wing ish one um started a few years ago by trade unionists um and so there's that and then there's various feminists in the media that are pushing this and have been for a while, some of them well-connected enough to have a column or to have a voice. So there's space there for that. Um, but in terms of bringing the size close together, there is a major problem, which is that any, almost any opportunity or sorry, any attempt to kind of get into dialogue with opponents, genuine opponents is met with no, you know, they don't want to be platformed. So if take me as an example, they don't want to be platformed with me they don't want to be in dialogue with me. It, when anyone, like an editor comes up and says, we want to like, or, or someone who wants to host a talk or whatever, we want to like have a dialogue, then they really, really struggle to find a trans person or a trans activist that disagrees with me to talk to me. And that's a problem. <laughs> you know, how are you gonna model dialogue if you can't get your opponents in the room? I think they use they use um, the they don't want to platform a bigot or they don't want to, uh, you know, basically engage with the evil um, as as a cop out because they're because their arguments don't stand up to 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 scrutiny at all. Like, so, you know, if you can't if you can't hold your own, you look much better if you're like, oh, no, she's just a terrible bigot. I won't speak to her. Then I'm afraid that's right. I mean, it's the only conclusion you possibly draw the number of times I mean I so recently I did do um a radio segment with a a trans woman who disagrees with me um and we did manage I thought at the time to have some sort of discussion although obviously she disagreed with me extremely 
but then as soon as it was over she went off to social media and said I was a terrible bigot <laughs> so <laughs> didn't last and um yeah I think that must be it but then you know if anyone's listening wants to prove us wrong <laughs> <laughs> I think the reality in in these kinds of ideological wars is we're never going to all agree and and in a free society I don't think total agreement across the board is, is what we should even be yeah, shooting for we, we just need ways of writing nuanced policies and laws in such a way that everyone's rights are protected and, and everyone is kept safe and mm-hmm. if you don't like somebody then you're not going to be their best friend and yeah oh god yeah I mean alone, that, right? so. oh completely that's not what we're talking about I mean yeah, I don't expect people to agree with me. And I certainly don't think that they shouldn't have a right to say what they're saying Mm -hmm. at all. I mean, people should have the right to argue the case for self-ID and for anything else they want in that area, just as I and others like me should have the right to argue that I think it's a bad idea. And I do have the right, um, just about, thanks to high-profile legal cases like Maya Vorstatters, which established that this was a reasonable thing. You know, you could say that sex was mutable and not be fired from your job. But, you know, we had to go to court to establish this. Um, I do have the right to say it, obviously, but I don't expect people to agree with me. But that's not, you know, if in practice, no one will actually, there's, there's obviously like ways in which this, we can bring the public up to speed. And a good way would be to like have a dialogue in front of them where they could make up their own minds about who they disagreed with. And it's just a shame that we don't seem to be able to do that very often, mm-hmm. if at all, really. And then I think actually, just to add to that, but I think that the sort of neutral observer, especially the kind of, um, I don't know, straight middle-aged person that's got no idea about any of this, they will look at you, the dialogue we're having and say, oh, well, that's, you know, because they they see, they ha- there's this sort of simplified way in which you think, well, you're trans people and you're a cis person, <laughs> so to speak, so you must, you know, this must be a dialogue that's sort of like somehow instructive, but it's not that instructive because we kind of agree with each other about lots of things. What we really need is people that disagree with us to, to talk to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad we're doing this, but, you know, it's not it's not a substitute for an argument with someone who's like, no, no, you're wrong yeah. on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we make a point not to do that, those kind of conversations here, just because I feel like, um, I mean, those conversations should happen. I want them to happen. Um, but I like um, here I, for, for the purpose of this podcast, it's more like to have to have really open, nuanced conversations with people mm-hmm. who you, for the most part, agree with. I'm, mm-hmm. Not necessarily even agree with, but like, I, I think you can't really have a kind of, because the whole point is obviously transparency and talking about things really openly and yeah. honestly. And it's really hard to do that in the company of somebody you fundamentally disagree with. And then, and so I don't really, you know, want it to be like a debate situation. You know, it's just yeah. like a, to have a, to have really open, honest conversations about things. And I think yeah. that's, that's really useful to people, you know, tuning in, um, just to, to, to kind of just see the, the broader context of, of these yeah. conversations without it having to be a debate. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I'm glad you're doing it. Um, I also do think that for in other um, fora, um, there's room for showing people that you can have strong disagreement and still be on good terms. Yeah. And you know, I come from a background in philosophy where 
that is the case because it's kind of built into the norms of the discipline or it used to be <laughs> that you know so I've got friends in philosophy that I completely disagree with. I think their views are shit. <laughs> I've written books explaining <laughs> why I think their views are terrible. And then we go to the pub and we have a drink and talk about our lives, you know? So it, it I mean, of course the, the stakes aren't as high and I do see that there are differences, but we're not very good as a society at the moment at, at modeling that because everybody wants to say, oh no, you're on a platform with that person and the social pressure to disassociate is strong. Um, so, yeah, I'm up for a bit of debate. Having said that, just in case anyone's about to offer, <laughs> I'm, I'm also about to have a couple of months off. <laughs> so, good, good. <laughs> Wasn't uh, weren't Hel Helen Joyce and Grace Lavery were going to have a debate? I wonder what happened to that. I, listening to I Grace no Lavery on, uh, on, she was on. Um, do you know heterodorks, Corinna Cohn, and I do. And I haven't podcast. What was that like, that episode then? I didn't listen to it. I listened to it. Uh, uh, Grace Lavery just, she does a lot of word vomiting. Um, it's like, um, it, you know, very Judith Butler, you know, you know, basically mm. doesn't really directly answer a question. It was very cordial, very, you know, very cordial conversation. Um, but, you know, Corinna and Nina were asking very direct questions or giving very direct definitions of, of how they, you know, use the word woman. Mm. And, um, and Grace being very polite in response, but just doing like, just words, spinning word salads that really made no sense um, and not really directly answering anything. Um, so mm. it's, it was frustrating to listen to, um, kind of elevated my cortisol because she just wasn't answering <laughs> anything. Um, but, but it was a cordial conversation. I'm not sure if there well, was any good. productivity to it, um, but, but yeah, no, they did okay. it cordially. So. Well, that's good. I actually think whatever the content of what was said, that there is a bit, and I'm no, Grace and I are not, in any way fans of each other but i do think that to actually have a conversation that was cordial was probably a service to everybody i want do want to stress and i i don't mind taking the opportunity here to stress i think that there are people that are ostensibly on somewhat on the side of me that are way too critical of voices like yours um in a sort of aggressive attacking obsessive way and that it's you know i do not stand with them <laughs> so <laughs> they're they're behaving exactly like the the people we expected to 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 yeah to, to get this kind of uh negative feedback from it's kind of yeah ironic. exactly i mean the thing is what this underlines and i think um it's important everyone keeps remembering it is that there's although this talk of movements is supposed you know the gender critical movement the trans activist movement it's it's to all the community things are said like that to inspire mm -hmm some kind of idea of solidarity and cohesion but it's not I've Doesn't, always been a bit yeah. negative it's not a movement it's a bunch of people on the internet that share some views and don't share others that are loose networks or single actors that some many are anonymous you don't know who they are uh, that's not a bad thing I understand why they're anonymous but you know the idea that we're all in some room together and there's been an agenda and we've all kind of voted for whatever the latest person no. to join us says is nonsense um I, there's Point. names involved now that i do not recognize at all you know that have not been around for very long have got huge prominence all of a sudden that's fine that's good in some cases but you know we're just it's not a homogenous hive mind at the same time i think that we should, like i said i think on our side we need to remember that we can get susceptible to the same sorts of dynamics as have messed up the trans activist movement completely <laughs> How I see it is like Aaron, you've used the metaphor of the of the elephant, you know, like you know, what is it, the the, the blind, you know, three blind men in a room, you know, one 
touching the trunk, one's touching the tail, one's, you know, and, or then my, my uh, analogy, I guess, is the, is the battle, I can't remember what, the, what it's called, but the battle in the Hobbit, where all the different forces, you know, different motivations, but having a common, common foe. Um, I, I think the more, the more different, the more perspectives in this debate, the better Right. Because like, mm-hmm. so if you've got the extremist radical feminists, they've got they've got a lot of good points. You've got the uh, the Christian conservative parents. They've got mm-hmm. a lot of good points. You've got the you know, um, the, the, the non gender believing trans people. You know, we've got we've got a good perspective to, to, mm-hmm. to add to it. And I think the more perspectives, the better. And for somebody to not see it that way, I can't really I can't really understand why why the more diverse and the like the, the more perspectives uh, yeah anyway I'm saying the same thing over and over again here but um because i just can't understand how it wouldn't be seen uh, seem obvious that the more voices in opposition to gender mm-hmm. ideology the better yeah i can see why i think that's a good thing too but i can also see why it's never going to work because you end up if you take that view then and you try and suspend your critical faculties about the people that are saying the same thing as you then you do end up feeling quite uncomfortable about some of them but that goes both ways you know i mean that's why i'm happy to say you know i don't consider myself there's some people in that supposedly in the gender critical movement that i've got nothing to in common with and do not agree with on nearly anything but that's we're all individuals you know mm-hmm. we should also remember that but i'm sort of not very good at the whole you know movement solidarity stuff i try my best but <laughs> it's not the way i was made i'm a lone academic type that you know just wants to say what i want to say and i'm happy when people agree with me obviously and i've had a lot of support from some brilliant people so this is in no way uh, supposed to be a i think the vast majority of people are well-intentioned mm-hmm. and um in this for the right reasons but i don't think we do ourselves any favors if we ignore the fact that some of them aren't right <laughs> well, well we'll keep we'll keep plugging away at it in our own individual ways yes good yeah <laughs> yeah keep going well awesome. thank, you. thank you so much pleasure have a good day thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast if you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.